the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this post VP Debate Night edition of the Dan Prof Show. We had a uh, great discussion, great calls last evening in reaction to Mike Pence's performance as well as Kamala Harris's performance. Pretty uh, unified opinion that uh, Pence once again exceeded expectations against a media-inflated United States senator, just as he did against Tim Kaine in 2016. We'll have uh, more debate-focused discussion on this program with John Tamney from RealClearMarkets.com and Noah Rothman from Commentary. We'll do a little bit with uh, Heather McDonald, too, if we get to it. But I want to focus our discussion with Heather on COVID-19. She wrote a great piece at uh, City Journal, city-journal.org, that we discussed the other day with uh, Rabbi Klatskin uh, against fear uh, in the context of his piece on redemption. And uh, Heather takes up uh, the challenge that President Trump presented upon his departure from Walter Reed Hospital, don't live in fear of COVID-19. Don't let COVID-19 dominate your lives. Well, that generated a response from the left uh, to uh, from various angles, actually. Here's uh, America's governor, Andrew Cuomo, on Trump's suggestion to not fear COVID-19. Andrew Cuomo sort of went the other way, that uh, the only thing you have to fear is not being afraid. From a public service point of view, Don't be afraid of COVID. No, be afraid of COVID. It can kill you. Don't be cavalier. This is just more denial. Hmm. Is uh, not being afraid the same thing as being cavalier? Is recognizing the risk and pushing on with life being cavalier or is it being rational? Uh, Well, uh, speaking of the question as to rationality, Jane Fonda, remember her? She uh, suggests that uh, actually the 210,000 dead Americans has been quite the gift for the left, a gift from on high, no less. We can stop fascism. We are at a point where we can. This is a crossroads. It's an existential crossroads. And. And we are people who can help determine which way humanity goes. What a great gift. What a tremendous opportunity. We're just so lucky. We have to use it with every ounce of intelligence and courage uh, and wherewithal we have. Because you're absolutely right. This is it. This is it. And, um, you know, I just think um, COVID is God's gift to the left. (laughs) That's yeah, this is a terrible thing to say. I mean, I think it was a very difficult thing to send down to us, but it has ripped the band-aid off 
who he is and what he stands for and what is being done to average people and working people in this country. For more on uh, all of that, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Heather McDonald, the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of City Journal, New York Times bestselling author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Uh, Heather, uh, confusing times. I, um, I'm supposed to be fearful, but yet at the same time excited by this gift that God has bestowed upon us, according to Andrew Cuomo and Jane Fonda. It's truly extraordinary, Dan. Uh, we are in the process of committing suicide as a civilization. I, I, I'm stunned that there is so little shame from the left in, in embracing an attitude that is so clearly one of capitulation, a, a destruction of everything humanity should stand for, which is courage, determination, stoicism. What we're seeing is the complete feminization of our culture. And there's obviously many positive traits that females have. But frankly, let's be honest, the male traits of, of, of stoicism, determination, risk-taking, going on against the odds are what have made civilization possible. And this, in one sense, Fonda's right. I mean, this is a very, very clarifying moment. And if the left wins and, and we continue with being not ashamed to say, I am afraid, <laughs> when males get up and say, we should all be afraid, I really do despair. Uh, the, it is the destruction of individual initiative, the replacement of the individual by government, people happily cowering in their homes, destroying business because they have no conception of the courage and effort that it goes goes into making businesses. This truly is a defining moment for our civilization. Jeffrey Tucker writing over at the American Institute for Economic Research uh, sort of suggests we call lockdown policies, lockdown ism, that it's actually ideological now uh, and it's a form of totalitarianism. That's uh, external. That's imposed by the state. Uh, What you're talking about, what you write about this safetyism, which is uh, ideological as well, that's sort of a self-imposed totalitarianism, isn't it? Absolutely. Again, I'm just stunned hearing those those clips. The Cuomo clip, and and yet you saw it on the front page of the New York Times the day after Trump gave really, I think, the most thrilling speech. And it wasn't even a speech of a few minutes of speaking (laughs) the twice when he got out of Walter Reed and saying, we can't be afraid, take took off the mask, which, of course, he had to do. He was on a balcony. I mean, the the press portrays it as being. He whipped off his mask. And I, I, I read that before I saw the gesture, and my heart just started pumping in adoration. You know, this was as far as the great, the, the, the most sort of sexy moment, really. I mean, this, the, this thing rips off the mask. This is what constitutes like a William Wallace moment in uh, the 21st century. Exactly. So that was the greatest moment of the Trump presidency, as I'm concerned. The New York Times, the headline was this. Banner headline, 
Trump returned from hospital says we should not be afraid. I like it is very difficult to wrap one's head around what is going on. Have they no shame? Uh, it's not is not FDR's we have nothing to fear but fear itself not echoing in everybody's mind as a rebuke to this capitulation to fear I, I we have got to pull ourselves out of this and yet what's so depressing Dan is seeing the passivity of large numbers of the populace and their almost ecstatic embrace of being afraid as you say there is obviously rational things that one can do and we we isolate the vulnerable but we recognize that life is about balancing costs and benefits and risk and the idea of eliminating all risk from life is a way of eliminating life itself you uh, and and what we're seeing too in in the western world it's, of course it's not just here you have now an outdoor mask mandate in Italy. You have Boris Johnson uh, completely giving in to the lockdowners, as it were, uh, and, and wide swaths of the British population being treated like uh, wide swaths of the Chinese population. Yes, uh, it is. of the Safetyism has become the ideology of the elites, uh, and, and it comes out of an academic culture, Females are taking over academia. They're they're turning. So now you have instead of rational argument, uh, students and faculty alike sort of saying, "I feel like" becomes a substitute for logic. Uh, and we see that with facts not mattering now. We have known the facts about COVID since March. March in Italy, their health ministry published data, the average age of the decedents were 80, average comorbidities three. Nothing has changed since March. That remains the profile of your average coronavirus death. The the risk of dying is like a thousand times higher for people who are 80 than people who are young. We know for the young, there's virtually no risk. It is safer than the flu. We have known all of this, and yet we have chosen, as you say, it is a choice, Dan, to be frightened rather than to get on with our lives. When we come back with Heather McDonald, I want to ask her about uh, this uh, rather um, pointed editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine and the larger topic of the politicization of medicine. Heather McDonald, uh, the best-selling author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture, will be right back with us for more. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program uh, in uh, the vice presidential debate. Um, the topic of uh, vaccine came up and the politicization of the vaccine development, the politicization of science and public health policy generally. The uh, question was put to Senator Kamala Harris about a possible vaccine and whether or not uh, she would take it. 
If the Trump administration approves a vaccine before or after the election, should Americans take it and would you take it? If the public health professionals, if Dr. Fauci, if the doctors tell us that we should take it, I'll be the first in line to take it. Absolutely. But if Donald Trump tells us I should t- that we should take it, I'm not taking it. Vice President Resp- uh, Pence responding. The fact that you continue to undermine public confidence in a vaccine, if the vaccine emerges during the Trump administration, I think is is unconscionable. And, Senator, I I just ask you, stop playing politics with people's lives. For more discussion on all things COVID related, COVID intersection with culture, um, we're pleased to be back with Heather McDonald, Thomas W. Smith fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of City Journal. New York Times bestselling author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. And Heather, I thought that was an interesting exchange because of largely because of the disingenuousness of Kamala Harris. The idea that uh, there would be a vaccine developed by a big pharma company in conjunction with academic researchers and that had uh, passed muster through all the clinical trials plus FDA authorization and so on and so forth. And it would just be Trump pulling it out of his pocket and saying, I have a vaccine. Nobody. And all you'd have to, to, to worry about or all you'd have to rely on is his word and not all these medical professionals and researchers that were involved in producing it is so absurd. But this is the, the this is how we talk about vaccines and things these days. <laughs> well, you know, the amazing thing about this whole covid nightmare that we're living through is it shows that right now the, the blue state red state division is absolutely existential. Who would have thought that a, a disease would have itself become a massive political divide? But Americans are so profoundly divided in their worldview that begins at, at the, the most basic understanding of the world. I mean, I keep saying, where do we start dividing? We start dividing on, on the very notion of sexual difference. Males and females, we can't even agree on that. And and the responses to the COVID uh, phenomenon are also, these things are very real. What To what extent do you want government to substitute for private economic activity? Uh, to what extent do you think that individuals can make choices for themselves? Uh, or 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 should be absolutely at the at the mercy of government dictate. We are divided on everything, and the uh, sort of demonization of Trump and and Harris's naivete uh, with regards to how medical research works and the fact that this is not something that that Trump could sort of pull out of his hat. And why would he want there to be a a fake vaccine anyway. I, uh, right. I mean, the whole thing is like you have to suspend any sort of ability to critically think and and assess yes. the, the 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 rationality of a particular statement that's made. It's just, yeah, I don't I think Trump's a liar, too. So, you know, just nod your head along with Kamala Harris. I mean, that's basically the extent of it, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know how we get out of this. I I'm really scared. You know, I don't want to be scared about everything, but yeah. but one is concerned about if we're ever going to be allowed to go back to normal human life. I certainly do not believe that a Biden administration is going to say, well, OK, lockdown's over. I think it is to the 
erotic thrill of power is just too too uh, hard to turn away from. And so many people have seized power in this moment. Uh, and and it seems like people are also getting an erotic thrill out of being frightened. It makes people feel like they're involved in something larger than themselves. Yes. Perversely. Yeah. And, and all and, and so but. Well, and, and also by wearing a mask outdoors, which is the most ridiculous. Nope, there is no outdoor transmission. Period. Period. Zero. There is not. There's. Mm-hmm. You need viral dose, but people feel like by wearing masks outdoors and being self-registered, those who are not, they're engaged in some great public purpose. Um, the New England Journal of Medicine editors opined on this: dying in a leadership vacuum. Uh, saying that uh, United States' political leaders have taken a crisis, turning it into a tragedy. The magnitude of this failure is astonishing. Uh, the United States consistently behaved poorly. Uh, we have failed at almost every step they write. We had ample warning, warning when they, but when the disease first arrived, we were incapable of testing effectively, couldn't provide even the most basic personal protective equipment to healthcare workers and the general public. Hmm, I'm not so sure about that. The CDC has been eviscerated, they say. I'm not sure. They don't really say how it has been. And then the concluding uh, uh, paragraph, anyone else who recklessly squandered lives and money in this way would be suffering legal consequences. Our leaders have largely claimed immunity for their actions, but this election gives us the power to render judgment. We should not abet them, enable the deaths of thousands more Americans by allowing them to keep their jobs. And all the while, as you read this, you recognize the them is almost exclusively limited to the Trump. Uh, this is the New England Journal of Medicine, you know, a, a ostensibly respected journal of medical thought and science. And this is this is how it's politicized even there, as we've seen with the Lancet as well. Well, uh, yes, medicine is now, like every other profession in this country, completely captured by the academic left after the George Floyd death uh New England Journal of Medicine, Lancet, they all went into full white supremacy bashing mode Mm -hmm. uh, and saying that blacks, you know, racism is a is a public health emergency. Uh, So you have STEM being corrupted, the pressure now to promote, uh, hire and promote underqualified doctors, researchers, simply because of their melanin or their gonads. It's 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 completely uh, taken over at this point, but the but the argument in the journal that you just read, Dan, is is completely specious. That the United States is doing as well as as Europe overall, and much better than many European countries. Uh, this thing, I, again, one is stunned at the hypocrisy of the left. It was Nancy Pelosi, it was Andrew Cuomo in the beginning who were saying go on with your lives. Rightly so. I'm not going to criticize them for that. I think they were right back then. We should have continued going on with our lives. There were mistakes with regards to the elderly, for sure. But they were no more uh, apocalyptic and hysterical about this in the beginning than any Republican or any Trump. And, And that has now been completely erased from public memory. Uh, they've done a 180-degree, and they're being allowed to get away with it. She is Heather McDonald, a Thomas W. Fellow, a Thomas W. Smith Fellow, I should say, at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of City Journal, New York Times bestselling author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering 
corrupt the university and undermine our culture. And uh, she has this great piece that I'll tweet out again against fear at the City Journal at present. Heather McDonald, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dan. Good talking to you. You too. Take care. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Some commentary on uh, the lockdown and bus policies that I think um, basically represents the choice on the ballot on November 3rd. Jochum Book, a uh, scholar of the American Institute for Economic Research. The remedy for our self-imposed economic harikari, this desperate and destructive attempt at self-harm that is government's pandemic response, is exactly to end it. To have governments get out of the way and individuals make choices of their own, choices adjusted to their own risks and risk tolerance, not a mindless one-size-fits-all solution that takes very little account of people's real lives. We need some restitution for the young and their broken dreams, for the poor and their lost sustenance, and for the rest of us and our lost liberties. There's one perspective. Another perspective, in addition to the lockdowns that are being pursued, is to uh, expand them to contemplate other transformations that have been delayed too long. And for that, I give you the commentary of Mariana Masacato, who is a professor in the Economics of Innovation and Public Value at the University College London. We have a triple crisis here, obviously the pandemic, but we also have crisis in climate. That's a public health crisis. And addressing it requires reorienting corporate governance, finance, policy, and energy systems towards a green economic transformation. Three obstacles must be removed. Business that is shareholder-driven instead of stakeholder-driven. So there'll be an interesting uh, board meeting when uh, it's announced that uh, business A is moving to not consider shareholder return but stakeholder psyche. Finance that is used in an inadequate and inappropriate ways and government that is based on outdated economic thinking and faulty assumptions. Corporate governance must now reflect stakeholders' needs instead of shareholders' whims. Building an inclusive, sustainable economy depends on productive cooperation among the public and private sectors and civil society. This means firms listen to trade unions and workers' collectives, community groups, consumer advocates, and unnamed others, according to the professor. This also means that if we don't act boldly in the direction that she suggests, then we'll have to impose economy-wide lockdowns to halt climate change which, uh, as we know from last night's debate, is an existential threat. That's what Kamala Harris said. That's how the Harris-Biden-Bernie-Sanders Green New Deal plans tackle it. For more on this, please be joined by John Tamney, editor of Real Clear Markets, director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks, and author of The End of Work, Why Your Passion Can Become Your Job. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Your takeaways from the debate, particularly on, you know, less so on the more fleeting topic of taxes, although that's a real issue, more so on the big gambits. Uh, And this is the discussion on environmentalism that was had last night, as it was to some extent had last week in the presidential debate. Yeah, well, my question is always, aren't voters skeptical at this point about politicians promising crisis? We've heard for how many decades that the world's on the verge of the 80 largest cities in the world are on the verge of being basically flooded by water because we haven't fought this alleged climate crisis. 
Why is it then that half of the world's population lives in coastal cities? Is, is that just a dumb market? Why do most businesses populate near in coastal cities? Are they just stupid? Do they not care about their houses and their buildings that will be wiped away by this climate crisis? I mean, I think it would help if our side eventually said, made the market argument that if this were such a thing, why aren't markets crashing to reflect the fact that most global wealth is in the very places where global warming is supposed to wipe us out? I mean, why are markets crashing right now? One response from the Keynesian crowd would be, well, thanks to those government interventions, whether it be the $4 trillion worth of easy money or the couple $3 trillion worth of COVID relief. Yeah, well, there's no such thing as either. There's a New York Times front page story today about the economy will collapse without stimulus. And so, well, the obvious answer is that without an economy, there is no stimulus. Uh, when governments spend money, they're spending growth that already occurred. They're harvesting growth that already happened. That's why they have money to spend. And so this idea that you can stimulate economic growth and trick markets by basically moving money from one pocket to another defies basic common sense. And that gets to the heart. If you want to know what I think about last night's debate and all these debates, when are Republicans going to say we demand one debate where we have someone who would ask the questions that we would ask, as in ask how is it that government spending works if you're taking it from one set of hands to from the other? Did the growth already occur? How is it that the Fed, just by fiddling with rates, could somehow cause credit to surge? All these questions that we ask, but that allegedly right-wing Fox never asks. And so you basically have three debates every time, and then fourth if you had the vice president, where the Republican is on the defensive because they ask questions from the left-wing point of view. Wouldn't it be wise for Republicans to say we're going to have someone with a clue about economics to maybe moderate one of the debates? When we come back with RealClearMarkets.com's John Tamney, I want to ask him if he has any recommendations for uh moderators for presidential debates or vice presidential debates that could pass an Econ 101 class. We'll also talk more about uh, COVID lockdowns right after this. Oh, yeah, it's like lightning. Everybody was frightening. And the music was soothing. And they all started grooving. Yeah. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with RealClearMarkets.com's John Tammany. Before the break, we were talking about the debates, the vice presidential debate, the debates generally. And uh, you mentioned uh, wanting a moderator that uh, would perhaps ask a question or two that uh, did not start from the left's premises. I'm in agreement, but is there anybody in the D.C. press corps who fits that description? They'll have to think a little bit more broadly, maybe take somebody out of academia or some other walk of life that has as much capacity. How about Mario Grady from The Wall Street Journal? I could yeah, name you sure, a bunch of sure. people from yeah, The Wall Okay. I'll take Paul Jago. There's a long list of people from credible media who could ask the questions that we might ask. But Republicans, every time, hand the debate question over to the Democrats by saying, we're going to answer questions through your highly emotional filter about how the world is ending, how everyone's starving, how kids are going without meals. Well, how do you win such a discussion when you're always asking questions from people who go to bed at night with their thumbs in, in their mouth, sucking them just vociferously? It seems to me, uh, there, I mean, there actually is a way to do it that could actually um, have a compound effect. 
which is to attack the premise of the question when you get a silly question from a Susan Page or from a Chris Wallace that starts from the premise of the left. Unfortunately, to your point, sometimes it takes more than 90 seconds to break it down. But there was a moment last night, and I know Pence didn't want to go there because it was on a topic he doesn't want to spend a lot of time on, Trump's taxes. But where Kamala Harris said Trump has, according to New York Times, $400,000 in debts or something like this. And she says, let me explain what a debt is. A debt is when you owe somebody money. And so who is this person? And is he making decisions based on the people he owes money to or something else? You know, just the the, the silly conspiracy theorizing because she doesn't know what she's talking about. But the, But a fun rejoinder would have been. Oh, really? Debt is what when you owe somebody else money. So when we have, for example, $20 trillion plus in debt, $23, $25 trillion in debt now, $100 trillion in unfunded liabilities, that's money that uh, we owe or we're imposing on people who will owe future generations of Americans. So let's talk about spending, Uh, although this administration is not exactly in the strongest position to talk about it. But it it just would be nice when they, they talk about these matters at a personal level, and somehow they're not applicable at a public policy level, I guess is my larger point. Yeah, again, they never they never know the right questions to ask, particularly ones on economics. And it's just frustrating that Republicans haven't picked up on this. And- the exchange on, on China, I mean, I know you're a free trader, but um, the idea that um, the trade war has been lost, uh, manufacturing jobs have cratered. I, I'm not a proponent of tariffs either. I'm a free trader, but I thought Mike Pence was effective when he said, you know, the trade war is lost. I mean, Joe Biden never even fought it. There is something that we've learned about China through their myriad human rights abuses, plus the intellectual piracy, plus the culpability they have with the spread of the COVID-19 virus. That uh, does suggest a long overdue reckoning, even if it's not always taken the form that a free marketeer like you would otherwise appreciate. You know, my response will always be so because the Chinese have done some things that some who aren't free traders don't like, should we damage the American people? Mm. My frustration just with the virus question alone is from our side, we get people on our side who properly point out all the time just how very much this hits a very a tiny sliver of the population. As the New York Times regularly points out, for over 40% of the deaths happen among uh, people in nursing homes. It's not that the old people dying isn't sad, but it's rarely, if ever, a tragedy. A tragedy is when hundreds of millions around the world are starving as a consequence of the virus. And so I ask the question, if we're going to point out these things, how can we then say, well, but the Chinese gave us the virus? If that's the best they can do, they can create something that has a death toll of 200,000, where by some accounts, a high majority of that 200,000 were people dying with uh, the virus, among other things. What are we so angry about? I I just I don't get the whole China thing. And and again, Biden is, is of course, plagiarizing uh, the Trump administration's um, um, illiteracy on, on trade. The reality, I thought we were for foreign policy and for and for global uh, safety and everything. When countries trade together, war is much less likely. I, to me, China was a much bigger threat 40 years ago when it was an impo- impoverished country. Now we have a rooting interest in one another, but both sides seem to want to um, fritter it away. I don't get it. With respect to China, you know, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. I mean, there's a virologist that has come forward and she has sought and received refuge in the United States who suggested that the virus was created in a lab, was weaponized in a lab and was released on purpose. So we don't know the origins of this so far. But if what she is saying turns out to be true, that is a completely different thing than a virus naturally occurring and a government being unable to stop the spread of it. 
Okay, but let's assume that conspiracy theory actually turns out to be true. We would then say, wow, gosh, they're not nearly as effective as we thought. That's the best you can do? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, there is the argument to be made. I mean, of course, the Trump administration is not going to make it because they're going to, you know, and, and, and the experts lean on the politicians and the politicians lean on the experts and they sort of cover one another. I get it. Um, but there, there is certainly an argument to be made. It just can't be made in this context or it's not going to be. It could be, but it's not going to be that, um, you know. We didn't know so much in the beginning. It should have been ease in just as we're trying to ease out. And some states are doing it effectively, Florida and uh, and, uh, and other states are not Illinois, New York, California. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's I think that's a, an absolutely fair point. Um, and it just it speaks to the limitation of politics, which I know you will say and I will agree that that speaks to the need to always limit the political power of politicians. Right. Yeah, without question. The crisis is ne- was, was never a virus, please. I mean, look, can, we, can we be, for once be honest, it, assuming they'd never discovered it, do you think anyone would have noticed? Has the U.S. changed? Have we, lost, have we lost a major part of the population as a consequence of this spreading? What if it had spread in 1950? Do you think we would have been talking about it? It's not to knock old people, but there is a greater tendency when they're older for them for them to pass particularly if they're if they're in nursing homes and so it would never have come up and so let's stop excusing politicians and the response is well the media wouldn't support us at what point do republicans recognize that ronald reagan had much less media back then it was the new york times la times post and wall street journal and pbs setting the, the news agenda there, there wasn't your show there wasn't rush limbaugh there wasn't the internet Ronald Reagan had it all against him, and yet he still managed to win 49 states to one. Why can't Republicans just occasionally act like Republicans and say, you know what? We're not going to take away freedom from people in response to a virus, and we're certainly not going to take away their ability to prosper in response to a virus, because that, assuming it is as risky as we think, um, the best way to fight something like that is economic growth. So I'm just I'm sick of excusing politicians. This is what they always do. He is John Tamney, editor of RealClearMarkets.com, director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks, author of The End of Work, Why Your Passion Can Become Your Job. John, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. There's going to be a heartache tonight, a heartache tonight, I know. There's going to be a heartache tonight, a heartache tonight, I know. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Welcome back to the show. And it was announced this morning by the Presidential Commission on Debates that the format for the second presidential debate would change to a virtual one. President Trump, Vice President Biden would not be in the same physical location for this town hall style debate that's supposed to take place on October 15th in Miami. My immediate reaction was, well, if it's virtual, then it's not a debate. It's the mindless value subtracting format of cable news and the president shouldn't do it. And uh, thankfully, uh, apparently we're either on the same wavelength, maybe he heard me, maybe he was listening to me do post uh, VP debate analysis. Uh, doubt it. But uh, nonetheless, we came to the same conclusion. Well, I'm ready to go except the quarantine situation that you have for a little while after you get tested or whatever the procedure is. But I'm ready to do I'm looking forward to doing the rallies. I heard that the commission a little while ago changed the debate style, and uh, that's not acceptable to us. Uh, I beat him easily in the first debate. 
according to the polls that I've seen, but I beat him easily. I felt I beat him easily. I think he felt it too. He wouldn't answer any questions, and he had the uh, protection of Chris Wallace all night long. It was just, I thought he, I thought Chris Wallace was a disaster, but I beat him in the first debate. At the second debate, we have a never Trumper as a host, but that's okay because I beat him in the second debate also. And uh, but I'm not going to so, do a virtual debate. We'll uh, get Noel Rothman's reaction to this. Noel Rothman from Commentary Magazine next hour, but. Um... The my my reaction is absolutely it's negotiating after the fact. There's no reason that President Trump and Vice President Biden can't be in the same on the same stage, even like last night. You make instead of six feet, it's 12 feet. Put up the the plexiglass barriers, uh, put them in Pope mobiles. I do whatever you want, but they have to be in the same space so there can be that interchange, particularly when you're getting questions from regular Americans facilitated by Steve Scully, who's scheduled to be the moderator. It's typical of the absurd overreaction to everything that happens. It goes back to our conversation at the top of the show with Heather McDonald, the safetyism, the oppression of safetyism, which is largely self-imposed, although this is attempting to be imposed on the president. It's just as with last night's debate, the overreaction because of the criticisms of the presidential debate with Trump's interruptions. Every time Susan Page asked a question, she had to say, along with the time allotted, you have two minutes, you have one minute, you have 15 seconds of uninterrupted time to continue to slap the hands of the two vice presidential nominees as if they need to be remembered again and again and again, not to allow their opponent to answer their question, to use their allotted time in answering the questions. It's just so silly. It's the continued infantilization. Now we have the media and these uh, star chamber commissions infantilizing prospective presidents of the United States, the incumbent as well as the challenger. No. And uh, Trump should hold fast and use the leverage he has to uh, perhaps disabuse the presidential commission of the notion that they can negotiate after the fact and dictate to uh, one side effectively on the topic. This is Dan Prof. This is the Dan Prof Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And do you remember Promise Keeper in uh, the late uh, 90s? Uh, former uh, head football coach of Colorado, University of Colorado, Bill McCartney, uh, among others, prominent in that movement. Uh, Promise Keepers did a national tour uh, in football stadiums, packing uh, two dozen NFL stadiums over the course of the gatherings to uh, bring men back to uh, fellowship in fellowship with each other, fellowship uh, with Christ and uh, to focus on their responsibilities as fathers and husbands. Uh, Whatever happened to that? Well, for a little bit of uh, the history of Promise Keepers up to the present, now that there's a new chapter being written, we're pleased to be joined by Vance Day, who's the president of Promise Keepers, which is going through a relaunch, and perhaps uh, it couldn't happen soon enough. Vance Day, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. 
Oh, it's great to be with you, Dan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, give us the trajectory of Promise Keepers, because I think uh, people uh, like myself certainly remember it and the impact it had and this this, uh, sort of uh, surprising organic response it generated of interest from uh, men and from families around the country. And then it sort of disappeared, and now it's coming back. So uh, explain. Well, you gave a good history, I think a good summary. Most people don't realize that Promise Keepers was the largest movement amongst Christian men in history of the world. Now, just in 1997 alone, it was 22 NFL stadiums, and you, you got it right. They were packed out. But not only that, on October 4th, 1997, uh, Promise Keepers did Stand in the Gap, which was the largest event of any of any group on the mall in Washington, D.C. There were somewhere between 1.2 and 1.4 million men who showed up. But, you know, the Lord works in, in seasons in our lives. I mean, all of us go through seasons, and organizations go through seasons as well. I mean, you can have a, a spring and a summer and a harvest time and then a dormant time, a winter time. And it's during that dormancy time that God usually does some pruning, you know, cleans us up gets us better ready and better for the next move. And that's really what happened to Promise Keepers. The last 10 years or so, Promise Keepers has been active, but not in the way it was back in the 90s. And in fact, it was um, so inactive that a group of men just said, no, we need to shut it down. And and then another uh, visionary leader, Ken Harrison, stepped in and said, actually, I think God wants us to rebirth it because men make men Mm. and men need to get together. And, And so that's why it's being reversed. Well, right, and and it seems to me, um, as I said, that this is uh, such an important uh, movement uh, because of its disposition. You were sort of describing bring Christian men together to talk about uh, faith in God and their responsibilities on earth. And as we continue to talk about violence on our streets and other social pathologies, so much of this comes back to uh, absentee fathers and uh, broken families, and until we get that right, and there's no president of the United States that's going to wave a wand and make that happen, until we get that right as individual men, then our country's not going to be right. Exactly. You know, people get a little cranky when, when they read in the Bible that God created men and women differently, and he gave them different roles, and he calls them to work together to bring about cultural changes. But men have a very specific role. You know, promise keepers anointing is to gather men together. And when we gather together, we go through a process of repenting and and understanding what God wants us to do. We form strong relationships with other men that are lifelong, you know, your band of brothers that do life with you. And so we've went at AT AT&T Stadium, got a great deal from Jerry Jones. I know that'll shock some people, but we did. (laughs) And so next July, July 16th and 17th in Arlington, Texas, right there in the heart of Dallas-Fort Worth, We'll be gathering 80,000 men together. But see, the beauty of it is, Dan, is that we can simulcast that to every nation on the earth. Yeah, right. Even trying to get it into North Korea. And the world can be changed. Because when men are brought into an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, then they understand their identity. When they get their identity, they start to understand their purpose and their destiny. It seems to me this is important as well. I mean, I don't want to make it political in a partisan sense, but politics necessarily is part of this discussion. It's going to be because your faith informs who you are as a person, all facets. And um, with uh, some of the criticism being leveled in the direction of Amy Coney Barrett for her affiliation with this People of Praise group and the misinterpretations, purposeful or just out of ignorance, 
of uh, some of what the people of Praise Group and what Christians and and conservative Catholics stand for when it comes to exactly what we were talking about, the different roles that men and women play. Um, The idea that men and women are different, the the idea that that should be controversial seems silly, but but it's it's a there's an argument against it that is being leveled. And any any suggestion otherwise is treated as from a man in particular is treated as there's another man who wants to subjugate women. And that's exactly what Amy Coney Barrett's been uh, accused of being party to, which is ridiculous. And it's a miss on people's misunderstanding of Scripture with respect to men and women and the different roles they play. So there's an education piece in addition to um, a, uh, a fellowship piece, it seems to me. Oh, no doubt. And in our current culture, which really looks at Christianity with the depraved eye, I mean, it, it's highly critical of the Church, and unnecessarily so, obviously. But we are called misogynists at times when we come forward and we say, hey, but men and women are different. Culture doesn't like that. I served as a circuit court judge in Oregon for over seven years, and I looked out from my bench and saw so many things that could easily be corrected if a man just took his responsibilities to provide to protect, to plan with and promote his family members and to play with them and be a godly man, a man of integrity, a man who understood who he was. But instead, we, we come in, you know, from our culture and we just say, you know, say, Libby, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. If you want to self-identify as whatever you want to identify as, that's fine with us. Although, Dan, it doesn't work in the airport because I wasn't wearing my mask the other day and somebody asked me, hey, put on your mask. And I said, well, I, I self-identify as being immune. That didn't work. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, there are limitations. You have to get to what you're identifying as, uh, you know, as one of the acceptable choices. There's no question. Exactly. Well, and yeah. and, and and also too, I mean, the the other uh, obvious uh, piece of this is uh, we have elevated uh, uh, and and used as a a crutch the idea that if something isn't going right for you, you're a victim at somebody else's hand rather than you're not you're somebody who's not living up to your responsibilities. Oh, exactly. And men men understand that they're not created to be victims. They, you know, when you come to know Christ, you are a son of the living God adopted into his family. We wear a signet ring, if you will, that when we move forward into what God calls us to, we get to stamp his name on it. We're not victims. We're victors. And so when men understand that and they see the grace and the power that God has given them to be servant leaders, we just look at Ephesians 5 and how Paul outlined how important it is that men love their wives, love their families like Christ loved the church. So when that happens in a culture and men become servant leaders, servant prophets, servant priests, and they start to give up their lives for those around them, it really does change not only their family, not only their church, but their community and eventually their culture. And so we have a heart problem here in America. And politics isn't going to you know, change it. The hearts of men need to be changed. And when that happens, our culture will change. Yeah, and I, I hope you get uh, some high-profile people, too, but, you know, just because they have such uh, cultural influence. I mean, I, uh, right off the top, I mean, Bill, like the way Bill, the role Bill McCartney played uh, two decades ago, I think of somebody like uh, uh, Dabo Sweeney down at Clemson who's been willing to speak about his faith and his perspective on some of societal ills and talk about America having a sin problem. You know, people like that uh, involved in the project as well. That would be ideal, I would think. Well, and those are really good suggestions. In fact, we're building out our speakers list right now. We had a great virtual event this summer where it touched over 85 nations, all 50 states, over a million men. 
And so Promise Keepers has demonstrated with the support of so many great people that it is back. And if, But the interesting thing, Dan, if this becomes about Promise Keepers, then it will be an epic failure. It's got to be about the, the men of God standing up in a movement and moving forward shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen to that. that. It'll change things. He is Vance Day. He's the president of Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers, men of integrity. The relaunch, as you just heard him say, next uh, uh, this, well, I guess this coming July now uh, at uh, Cowboy Stadium down there in uh, outside of Dallas. 80,000 men expected. For more information, uh, the website is pknet.org. Is that right? Yeah, Promise Keepers, one full word, promisekeepers.org. Just go to promisekeepers.org. Oh, just promisekeepers.org. Got it. Promisekeepers.org for more information to get involved. Vance Day, thank you so much for joining us, and good luck with uh, the relaunch and all the good work you're doing. Thanks, Dan. It's been great being with you. Take care. Coming up, we'll uh, move away from our discussion of the ecclesiastical with uh, Vance Day and return to our discussion of the political with commentaries Noel Rothman talk uh, a little bit more post-mortem uh, on uh, last night's vice presidential debate. So stay tuned for that. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Last night's vice presidential debate, uh, I thought Mike Pence did a... A very good job on the topic that the left wants to talk about the most, that is hurting the Trump administration the most politically, uh, that is COVID. And that was the first topic that the two candidates tackled. And uh, I thought uh, Pence provided a nice summation after Kamala Harris was asked what exactly the Biden plan was. You know, it's one thing to just accuse the president, try and hang 200,000 dead Americans around the neck of the Trump administration. It's another thing to say, well, okay, what would you have done differently? And by the way, we have some statements you've made along the way on the record that suggest some things you would have done differently and some things you wouldn't have. And some things that you would have done differently would have worked out worse for the country, for example, closing off travel from uh, from China. Uh, and, and, and Kamala Harris basically said, uh, you know, we would do things better than they would. We wouldn't have done this and we wouldn't have done that. All these things that are sort of uh, unprovable abstractions. And Penn summarized it as such. The reality is when you look at the Biden plan, it reads an awful lot like what President Trump and I and our task force have been doing every step of the way. I mean, quite frankly, when I look at their plan that talks about advancing testing, creating new PPE, developing a vaccine, um, it looks a little bit like plagiarism which is something Joe Biden knows a little bit about. Nice deadpan ding. Uh, I don't think Kamala Harris was expecting that from Mike Pence, uh, shot across the bow early on in the debate. But the the larger point that he was making, I know on certain terms, is, look, um, you've heard from the beginning Trump's reliance on those advisors around him. How many times has not just Trump said it, but Tony Fauci said, I've always been listened to, I've never been shut up. The president uh, has been transparent, has relayed the things that I've said in private meetings. 
and has largely followed the recommendations of CDC and uh, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Birx, including with something he didn't want to do, which is to shut down the economy that he no longer wants to maintain. But the Democrats do. So there's a difference for consideration in present. And they're blaming him for the consequences of policies they, too, supported. That was the point that Pence made. So uh, the Trump administration is responsible for all the anticipated negative consequences of policies that they pursued. Democrats supported it, but they're not responsible and they actually want to perpetuate them where Republicans don't. And then for things that they didn't support that now don't look like uh, the position now doesn't look so attractive, as I mentioned, as Pence mentioned, like shutting down travel from China and then uh, other parts of the world subsequently. Uh, they they just sort of gloss over that. It's all about what uh, it's just about essentially making the accusation that all of these people who died of covid wouldn't have died if Biden and Harris were. I mean, yes, if Biden and Harris were in charge and and, and Biden has previously leaned on his record, how Obama and Biden did it back in 2009 with the swine flu. Well, uh, Mike Pence is so glad you brought that up. He was waiting all week to offer a review of the Obama-Biden performance on swine flu. You know, the reality is when you talk about about failure in this administration, we actually do know what failure looks like in a pandemic. It was 2009. The swine flu arrived in the United States. Thankfully, it was ended up not being as lethal as the coronavirus. But before the end of the year, when Joe Biden was vice president of the United States, not seven and a half million people contracted the swine flu. Sixty million Americans contracted the swine flu. If the swine flu had been as lethal as the coronavirus in 2009, when Joe Biden was vice president, we would have lost two million American lives. Uh, And that sort of ended that segment. Uh, I I don't think Kamala Harris was expecting that either. Uh, On the matter of covid. uh, The the Pence performance was important because it wasn't over the top about uh, what a wonderful job we did. We couldn't have done anything better. He didn't go into things that perhaps could have gone better, but it was restrained. That's why it was helpful. It was uh, well thought out. It was presented in complete sentences. It was on the mark. It was laden with specifics, but it was also restrained. Of course, things could have gone better. You know, we we were uh, caught flat-footed in so many respects, as previous administrations were, and what we inherited from previous administrations were. But yes, uh, if we could have known six months later. Uh, if we could know what we know six months later, uh, six months ago, would that have changed some of the decisions we made? Of course it was, because we would have had more knowledge. It's still imperfect knowledge today, but we would have more knowledge. The, the humility, I think, is something that's important. The restraint is something that's important, because I think most reasonable people will understand. Nobody can, you know, through the power of their personality, uh, stop the spread of a, of a virus w- without consequence. You know, this these apocryphal stories of Joe Biden standing on the eastern seaboard and stopping Ebola from coming ashore. I mean, they're ridiculous. Um, But it requires restraint and humility in tackling something as big and complicated and uh, to some extent uh, unstoppable as uh, a particularly infectious virus. 
And I think without getting into, you know, using that language, uh, Pence conveyed that last night. And I think that was helpful on the topic, too. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined again by Noah Rothman, associate editor for Commentary Magazine, author of the book Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. Noah, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, So before we... uh, comment on the format of the next debate, if there's going to be one. How about uh, your review of the Pence-Harris debate last night? Well, I, I think I'm in the minority because I really enjoyed it. Like, I really enjoyed it. So did I. Um, it, was, it was a throwback to the before time when you could – it was what we used to call politics, the artful act of shiving your opponent and putting words in their mouth while at the same time maintaining a patina of discipline and decorum and civility. That is that is the dance. That's the choreography that anybody who loves politics was lured into this business, being attracted to that kind of um, deft and, uh, and craft. And we saw a lot of that last night, and it was actually relatively substantive. And um, I thought it was an informative debate. It's a VP debate. It won't matter at all, even a little bit, but it was still very, very fun and very valuable. Nevertheless, um, if you are a loosely committed voter, a persuadable voter at this point, you're not ideological. You don't really vote on policy. Otherwise, you would have made up, made up your mind by now. You vote on personality. You vote on conduct, on people who make you feel uh, safe, who you trust. And in terms of – in those terms, um, I think both of them hit their marks. Both of them were able to, to pass whatever that bar is. Uh, and you, as a loosely committed voter, tend not to vote for the second – candidate on the ticket you vote for the ticket so it's the president who matters mm. when we come back with commentaries noah rothman i want to gauge uh, his assessment of kamala harris's performance and also uh, ask him whether or not he agrees with president trump that uh, doing a virtual debate is a waste of time more right after that Show.com. We're back with commentaries. Noah Rothman, we're talking about the vice presidential debate. And uh, Noah, I want to get to your assessment of Kamala Harris's performance because Kamala Harris strikes me as somebody who you can see on any given Sunday, on any given Sunday talk show repeating the lines that have been uh, leveled against President Trump by that punditry set for the last four years and not much underneath that. She seems to me um, she performed in the same way that earned her a early exit from her own party's primary. Yeah, I think that Kamala Harris came in there with uh, reasonably low expectations, in part because I think her performance during the primaries was abysmal. She was easy to knock off message. Whatever poll testing they did around get Donald Trump off Twitter and her support for Medicare for all and her, her lack of preparation for the attacks that were levied on her record by Tulsi Gabbard. 
suggested that she wasn't a very good debater. She was relentlessly on message last night, to the exclusion, in fact, of areas where she could have made some hay. Mike Pence, for example, would make a statement that is easily exploitable, and she passed on the opportunity to do so, because to do so would have been to improvise. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a lot of, that was very disciplined. Whatever you think of her performance, what she was saying, that conduct demonstrates that she's very well prepared, and she was very capable of executing the campaign strategy. And that's all that matters, because you don't have to believe the polls are 100% correct. If they're even remotely accurate at this point, they've got a big cushion. It's the Trump campaign that needs to make up ground. Yeah. And I don't think they did it last night. Well, but that's not the point. I mean, you're right. Not losing ground is not picking up ground. Um, the And so this is the same argument coming out of the presidential debate, which was, well, I don't think anybody changed their mind. Well, that wasn't the point. The point per the expectations was that Trump was going to wipe the floor with Joe Biden and that was going to be a springboard to victory. And that's not what happened. And so that's a problem. But with respect to Pence, Noah, uh, it seems to me that, yes, I mean, I agree with you. There's limited um, <laughs> limited upside for a vice presidential debate, perhaps more so this year, as you said. But it also provides a bit of a, a segue from what happened last week to what can happen in the next three weeks. And now it's really going to be up to the president to try to build upon that inflection that Pence provided, I think, last night. Yeah. And, and there's an opportunity to do so. I, I heard you say that you don't think that the president should participate in a remote debate. Yeah. In part because the format is going to be terrible. And I agree, the format will be terrible. It won't advantage, certainly won't advantage Donald Trump, who feeds off an audience and, and is very good interacting in a live, with a live audience in the room. And the interchange will be very difficult. Anybody who's done like a, a Zoom call for the benefit of an audience will tell you that it's, it's, a, it's a rough format. However, if the narrative holds that it becomes now Donald Trump has backed out of this debate, I don't think that lasts. I don't think he has any chance but to participate in this debate if that's the narrative, because once again, he's on defense and you can't play prevent defense when you're down 10 points. Yeah, the, the age at which we're in, what I take you to mean is the age of absurd overreaction. And we saw it a little bit last <laughs> night. We saw it a little bit last night. You said it. We, yeah, with Susan Page, uh, now you have one minute uninterrupted. Now you have two minutes uninterrupted. I mean, I, we get it. There were interruptions in the presidential debate. This isn't the presidential debate. And they heard you three times the first 10 times. OK, relax. Right. I mean, it's just it's then, so childish. And then we got, uh, you know, they actually broke down the amount of time that each candidate spoke. And they both spoke for roughly equivalent times. But Mike Pence was chastised repeatedly, both by his opponent and the moderator, for abusing their time. But he didn't abuse his time. These are vice president, a vice president, a vice presidential candidate. When we get it, hear the rules, two minute answers, one minute responses, so on and so forth. Uh, you just say, thank you, Mr. Vice President. And that's a signal to complete your thought. And then we'll move on. You don't need to see thank you after every word he's trying to get out when he's got one sentence left. Chill the frack out. You know what I mean? Right. Precisely. Uh, there's, so there's one thing about this. About it. I don't know if, if you notice it, but. A lot of them weren't very interested in answering the questions they were asked. Yes. And this was a source of well, this was sort of a source of a lot of consternation for people who were watching this debate. The moderators need to intervene and, and jump on this and force them to answer the questions they were asked, which is incredibly insulting. The audience knows when they're not answering a question. Right. And those non-answers are as edifying as an answer. Um, it, but it reveals the campaign's hand. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of a couple of instances. For example, Mike Pence. When asked about climate, he would pivot to the Green New Deal. 
When asked about pre-existing conditions, he pivoted to abortion and Amy Coney Barrett. When asked about a peaceful transition of power, if, he, if, the, if the ticket loses, he talked about impeachment. Kamala Harris, similarly, do you have a COVID plan? Talks about Trump's, Trump's response. Are you going to pack the court? Talks about appointments and vacancies and the number of black justices on the bench. Everything else? Talk about Joe Biden. Those are the camp's strengths. That tells you what their internal polling says about what the issues are and to me, it suggested that Mike Pence has the edge on issues, and Kamala Harris has the edge on the candidate. Noah Rothman, associate editor for Commentary Magazine, author of the book Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. Noah, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Thank you. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, President Trump uh, took to uh, video again yesterday to uh, offer a message about his health and also the therapeutic treatment he got with a particular emphasis on the um, Regeneron treatment that was utilized to combat his infection and how he wants that same therapeutic for all Americans. I spent four days there and I went in, I wasn't feeling so hot. And within a very short period of time, they gave me Regeneron. It's called Regeneron and other things too, but I think this was the key, but they gave me Regeneron and it was like unbelievable. I felt good immediately. I felt as good three days ago as I do now. So I just want to say we have Regeneron. We have a very similar drug from Eli Lilly, and they're coming out, and we're trying to get them on an emergency basis. We've uh, authorized it. I've authorized it. And if you're in the hospital and you're feeling really bad, I think we're going to work it so that you get them, and you're going to get them free. And especially if you're a senior, we're going to get you in there quick. We have hundreds of thousands of doses that are just about ready. I have emergency use authorization all set and we got to get it signed now that's what i want for everybody i want everybody to be given the same treatment as your president because i feel great well uh, that is uh, you know worthwhile perspective and it runs counter to this uh, again false assertion by the left that uh, president trump was able to get a treatment that ordinary americans can't get well Number one, I mean, yes, does the president of the United States get better health care than most Americans? Yes. Very few Americans have, you know, 24-7 round-the-clock team coverage for their health. There's a reason for that. So let's not be naive and silly if we could just for a moment. But number two, uh, that's not true with respect to the monoclonal antibody treatment from Regeneron because you can get emergency use authorization just as the president did. You can have your doctor, if he thinks he or she thinks it's appropriate, uh, make the same appeal to the FDA for you if you were infected that uh, was made on behalf of the president. But, but there is something about the way the president talks about this. First of all, Regeneron is not the treatment. It's the company that produced the treatment, the monoclonal antibodies, these synthetic antibodies. This speaks to the way the president needs to message on COVID. He needs to message on COVID-related matters, much the way that Mike Pence did last night. He needs to sort of internalize all that he and synthesize all that he receives as being part of, you know, his coronavirus task force, all the information he gets, all the advice and counsel he gets, all the updates on 
research that he gets and synthesize it in a way that is publicly consumable by being clear in communication, complete sentences, and specific. The way Pence was last night when he talked about there were five cases. They were individuals who had traveled to China. After those five infections became known, that's when the administration moved to close travel from China. That's how quickly we moved on the topic. And again, Tony Fauci saying that saved, uh, who knows, hundreds of thousands of lives, potentially. It needs to be linear and translated for the layman. And that means you need to be in command of the specifics so that you can properly, effectively communicate. I say again, the primary reason that President Trump is not enjoying favorable reviews by a majority of the country for the administration's response to COVID is his failure to communicate lucidly on these topics, his lack of specificity, his misuse of vocabulary to talk about a company as the treatment. It's just little things like that. If you want to convey command and inspire confidence, then you are specific with your words, particularly something that is technical and layered. A little bit of preparation, a little bit of run through on some of these topics so that you are clear in communication would, I think, do wonders for President Trump. Yes, I know the media is going to twist and turn and invent as the as needed around Trump and his communication on every topic, including COVID. But in those moments where they can't filter like a debate, like last night with Vice President Pence, you can do what vice presidents did, take advantage of them. Uh, so, for example, talked about uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, of doses of the monoclonal antibodies, although he didn't use that phrase and he should. Well, there's a new study out about this that's encouraging. This is at statnews.com. 112 patients received 2.8 grams of each of the antibodies and 156 received the placebo. The difference in viral load was statistically significant at day 11, unlike some doses of Lilly's single antibody cocktail. This is Regeneron versus Lilly, since he mentioned both. Also a statistically significant reduction in viral levels three days and seven days after infection. The treatment also improved symptoms and resulted in fewer hospital and emergency room visits. It was uh, visits to the hospital or ER made by 5.8% of the patients in the placebo group, but just nine-tenths of a percent of those patients who received the antibody combination. Barely statistically significant, but nonetheless statistically significant. Lilly anticipates it could have as many as 1 million doses of its one antibody treatment available in the fourth quarter of 2020 with 100,000 available this month. For the combination therapy, just 50,000 doses will be available in the fourth quarter of 2020. And it's important to note both antibody regimes have been well tolerated, no serious side effects, according to this new study. Uh, but, you know, if you make specific reference and, and bring people along with the information as you have it, then you inspire confidence that you're on top of new developments. You're conveying important information and you're helping them understand what makes sense and what doesn't. President Trump said something else. This is sort of the anti-Jane Fonda comment that I thought was uh, very uh, instructive in terms of competing perspectives. You heard at the top of the show, Jane Fonda how 210,000 dead Americans from COVID uh, infections and related maladies, but COVID. That is a gift from God to the left. R run the argument by me one more time about how humanity's best bet are these death cultists like Jane Fonda, Hanoi or Bolshoi Jane. Uh, would take your pick. I mean, just a remarkable statement. Well, uh, Trump also, thank God, but 
uh, this time it was uh, or from from his perspective as compared to Jane Fonda, this was more selfless than self-centered. I think this was a blessing from God that I caught it. This was a blessing in disguise. I caught it. I heard about this drug. I said, let me take it. It was my suggestion. I said, let me take it. And it was incredible the way it worked. Incredible. And I think if I didn't catch it, we'd be looking at that like a number of other drugs. But it really did a fantastic job. I want to get for you what I got. And I'm going to make it free. You're not going to pay for it. The instinct is right. Uh, the treatment appears to be encouraging the therapeutic, the monoclonal antibodies. Just get more precise with the language, please, Mr. President. This is Dan Proff. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Remember the name Mark Judge? Mark Judge. Uh, Judge uh, was a classmate of Brett Kavanaugh's during the Kavanaugh hearing. He was accused by Christine Blasey Ford of being present and laughing as Kavanaugh allegedly sexually assaulted her when they were in high school. Judge said at the time he had no memory of those events. Well, what's Mark Judge doing today, a couple years removed? He uh, writes <laughs> an interesting aspect uh, from Dante of uh, what he's doing now. And by the way, he had written other books about... Um, uh, his youth in D.C., recovery from alco- alcoholism, and so forth. Uh, he writes, uh, of course they hired me on the spot. Nobody else wanted to spend seven hours a day suffocating in Vietnamese-level heat, gagging on a stupid COVID mask, getting soaked, getting soaking wet and wearing your muscles to exhaustion by scraping eggs, chocolate, bread dough, and other muck off trays, plates, soup bowls, assorted cutlery, and Tupperware that piled from floor to ceiling. But there was no choice. I'd become a dishwasher. Industries are collapsing due to COVID. My own profession, journalism, or maybe it's my former profession, is bleeding out. It doesn't really bother me as I long ago decided that most official journalism is garbage. And I was going to think and write as a free man, no matter what the consequences. I'm certainly that uh, feeling about journalism was confirmed by his treatment during the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. He writes better a free thinking dishwasher than a very important editor or TV personality who's a captive mind. I like the free spirit. When a uh, friend heard he was a dishwasher, he said he found my situation poignant, <laughs> or writes Judge. I'd been a book author, a contributor to places like the Washington Post, New York Times, and the target of an explosive and well-publicized 2018 political hit. My friend reminded me of something I hadn't thought about since my time at Catholic University in the 80s. At the end of the inferno, Dante and Virgil can only escape hell by climbing up Satan's anus. You're stuck in Satan's anus. His friend told Judge, you just got to keep climbing. I, you know, I, I read Inferno and I had forgotten about that. It's gosh, it's so applicable in so many respects. Uh, and a Judge reacting in his piece to that advice to keep climbing, to get out of Satan's anus. Sounds like wise, uh, wise advice. The only way through it is through it. And the crisis, if we're lucky, will remind us how far we as human souls have become separated from our true selves and bodies. Uh, he uh, quotes uh, James Hollis, who's a psychologist, his uh, book, Living Between Worlds. 
Our culture's treatment plans for the absence of a personal intimate relationship w- with the gods are materialism, hedonism, narcissism, and nationalism, as well as a con- coursing nostalgia for a world that never really existed. Our contemporary odysseys are redirected to the Apple Store, the Palliative Pharmacy, or forays along the river Amazon Prime. <laughs> Guided by Google, where all things are knowable, we wonder why we are so absent-spirited, so lost, so adrift. We may say that these secular surrogates, these isms, constitute our values, our de facto religions, those in which we most invest our energies. But we have to ask the obvious question, how well are they working for us? Hmm. Goes back to our conversation with Vance Day from Promise Keepers at the top of this hour, doesn't it? How well are they working for us? Mark Judge, for one, says, not well. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us, danproftshow.com, podcasts, uh, source material for the show, and all kinds of other good stuff uh, on social media, at Dan Proft Show. Back to last night's debate. I thought it was interesting the way that Kamala Harris uh, characterized uh, the reason that she was selected by Joe Biden to be his running mate. Take a listen. You know, I have a career that included being elected the first woman district attorney. I was elected um, the first uh, woman of color and black woman to be elected attorney general of the state of California, where I ran the second largest department of justice in the United States. Isn't it interesting? I mean, yes, she's had uh, important jobs in the legal space, but she has to uh, preface her professional accomplishments by identifying her gender and then her gender and race. Why? For more on that topic of identity politics and the lies that lie at the heart of identity politics, which is a op-ed he has recently penned, we're pleased to be joined by Philip Carl Salzman. He's a professor emeritus of anthropology from McGill University up there in Canada, senior fellow at the Frontier Center for Public Policy and fellow at the Middle East Forum as well. Professor Salzman, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Delighted to be here. Were you uh, struck by... um, Kamala Harris's need to tell everybody that she was a black woman when she was a prosecutor, she was a black woman when she was the Attorney General of California? That's par for the case these days. It's very common for people to invoke census categories of race, gender, sexuality, even religion and ethnicity to somehow claim some kind of extra value. And the uh, the extra value, uh, ostensibly, at least if, as I, if I understand Ibram Kendi, a.k.a. Henry Rogers' uh, categorizations properly, the extra value is I am somebody who is oppressed, who survived my oppression at the hands of the white male patriarchy. So that, that is actually a special accomplishment and qualification. Exactly. The All of these identity politics invocations are put into a framework of oppressor oppressed and everybody's claiming to be a victim of somebody else and therefore worthy of sympathy and also reparations, special benefits, 
and special consideration. I wonder if you can give us a, some perspective on the genesis of all this, because I think there's a lot of people over the last couple of years who've woken up to this, not in the woke sense, meaning they have been awakened to this reality. Uh, they're not with the woke walkers on the left, and they don't understand how it uh, migrated from college campuses to their companies and their kids' schools. They don't know what to do about it, and they don't know where this leads, uh, addressing that you know, sort of the past and what the future may portend. The feminists in the 1960s and 70s borrowed the Marxist class struggle, alleged struggle between the bourgeois and the proletariat, the well-to-do and the workers. Now, the Marxists were never really able to sell that one in North America because most North Americans see themselves and indeed are middle class. Uh, so they don't really accept that. But that class struggle model was one that was adopted by feminists who claimed that the male patriarchy was oppressing all females in the society and that there was a gender class conflict and that therefore there needed to be a, in a sense, a, a gender revolution. There was a focus on grievances, on grievances by females, some of which, uh, as time went on, became really invented and not really corresponding very well to reality. What initially was claimed to be a program to increase gender equality became one in which feminists uh, vilified males and demanded to replace them. For example, males became, and masculinity became characterized by females as toxic or poisonous. And um, you've probably seen the t-shirts the that are popular among young feminists, the future is female. So it becomes very clear this class conflict wants to be one in which the classes are flipped and the females become dominant, and males, because they're not worthy, are, are at the bottom. Unless they're feminized. So this was a conversation we had in part with Heather McDonald earlier in the show, and she talked about the feminization of all aspects of culture. And, and so if you fold in with this identitarianism, then perhaps you can survive even if you have the wrong the physical characteristics, you know, being male, being white. And this is, well, this is the feminization of the culture. That's what some people hope, although... Feeding your family to the crocodile in the hopes that, that he'll eat you last has never been a very good strategy in the end. This class conflict model was picked up, of course, by, by the gay rights movement that claimed oppression at the hands of heterosexuals and demanded uh, equal rights and also recognition of their special high qualities. More important, the, it was picked up by race activists. And we got the race-class conflict in which all African-Americans and people of color were, are oppressed by whites who are, whether they think so or not, racist. And indeed, the whole society allegedly is systemically racist, an idea advanced by sociologists and race activists without much in the way of empirical evidence. In fact, the evidence tends to go against that. Evidence of, of race relations in North America have been relentlessly improving over, over the decades. So you have 
large numbers of, for example, of mixed marriages. You had people, uh, whites voting for black politicians, uh, electing a black president, uh, saying, if you ask them, basically that um, they don't see any boundaries that they want to maintain between people of different races. Yeah, but uh, that, 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 that doesn't matter to the, uh, the intellectual... Uh, the intellectuals behind this identitarian movement and so many of the unhinged activists, and that's using that term politely, uh, euphemistically almost. And, and you know, it's, a, it's always a committed uh, minority that uh, moves the needle one direction or the other. So I wonder where you think this ends, because culturally, even though they may be small in numbers that adhere to this, uh, you know, racism is hardwired into the DNA of the country and, and white people, and all you can do for the rest of your life is apologize for being born white, even though that may not be a majority opinion, that is where those in charge of our cultural and civic institutions are, and I, I wonder if you think this ends in, uh, you know, some sort of gulagocracy. Well, it's as they say, it's a little hard uh, to predict, especially about the future. <laughs> yes. but, but, but what I can tell you is that the evidence, if you actually want to look at evidence, doesn't support these any of these claims. It doesn't support the claims of the feminists. It doesn't support the claims of race activists. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. One of the big talking points uh, among feminists, especially in universities, is that we have a rape culture. And the whole idea of a rape culture is that every female is threatened by, uh, by every male and can be raped at any moment. Uh, well, if you, in fact, look at the statistics, uh, Rape is is quite rare, and um, and it's even rarer on campus than it is than it is in the general in the general society. Uh, furthermore, uh, the idea that that we have a rape culture um, it, it violates any idea of what culture actually is. A culture is what children are taught. Uh, what we reward them for doing, um, uh, how we guide how we guide people. In other words, the the established uh, values, beliefs, and norms. Uh, and of course, uh, we do not teach children to rape. We do not encourage them to rape. We do not teach them how to rape, and we don't reward them if they rape. Um, we discourage them, and we discourage such behavior. Um, as a father, of course, I, I was very clear with my son uh, about how he should treat women, uh, which, of course, is, is with respect. Uh, and uh, so uh, mm. this, this idea of a rape culture, if you start to look at it, it's a, it's a good slogan, but it's totally unfactual. He is Philip Carl Salzman, Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at McGill University, Senior Fellow at the Frontier Center for Public Policy and Fellow at the Middle Eastern, at the, excuse me, Middle East Forum. Professor Salzman, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 
Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Could there be a, a better bridge from identity politics to economics than Camille Paglia? I was reminded of an op-ed she wrote in the Wall Street Journal in 2012. This uh, Camille Paglia, second wave feminist, lesbian, atheist, iconoclast, banished by uh, so much of uh, second wave feminism, that kingdom. She wrote in the Wall Street Journal in 2012, and, and she's a fascinating thinker, a great writer. Capitalism has its weaknesses, but it is capitalism that ended the stranglehold of the hereditary aristocracies, raised the standard of living for most of the world, enabled the emancipation of women. The routine defamation of capitalism by armchair leftists in academia and the mainstream media has cut young artists and thinkers off from the authentic cultural energies of our time. We live in a strange and contradictory culture where the most talented college students are ideologically indoctrinated with contempt for the economic system that made their freedom, comforts, and privileges possible. Thus, young artists have been betrayed and stunted by their elders before their careers have even begun. Is it any wonder that our fine arts have become a wasteland? That was eight years ago. How have things progressed in the uh, subsequent eight years in those uh, confines in which Camille Paglia describes? For more on uh, all things economic we're pleased to be joined by Tyler Goodspeed, the Council of Economic Advisors Acting Chairman. Mr. Goodspeed, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. Uh, it seems like uh, perhaps we do need, I mean, I know we want to talk about specific policies, and we will, generally speaking, and that's necessary, but we start, sort of have to reestablish a foundation that a uh, a market-oriented economy is a, is a good thing, not an oppressive thing. I think that's right. And, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Uh, we saw a couple of weeks ago a report come out of the Census Bureau, and then it was reaffirmed last week with the survey of consumer finances out of the Fed. In three years of President Trump and, and Vice President Pence with, a, with a, an agenda of tax reform, deregulation, uh, promoting energy independence through innovation, uh, and also promoting uh, fair and reciprocal trade, in three years of, pre- of that economic policy agenda, the typical American household experienced real income gains that were more than five times greater than what we experienced under eight years of former President Obama. The typical African-American household experienced real income gains in three years that were more than nine times greater than what they experienced in eight years of President Obama and Vice President Biden. It's just staggering finding of what three years of tax reform and a deregulatory agenda can achieve. But yesterday at the vice presidential debate, I heard Senator Harris say that President Trump started a war, a trade war with China that America has now lost. And the result is the exit of manufacturing jobs. Is that accurate? It's not accurate. So in the first three years of the Trump administration, U.S. manufacturing actually added over half a million jobs. This was after we had lost almost five million manufacturing jobs in the 16 years after Congress passed and President Clinton signed into law the establishment of permanent normal trading relations with with the People's Republic of China, which just absolutely decimated U.S. manufacturing employment. And so for the first time, really, in in, in 16 years, we started to see real employment gains in in manufacturing. And I think the other thing that we saw uh, in the three years of, of Vice President Pence and President Trump was actually a decline in income inequality, wage inequality, and wealth inequality. So under under President Obama and Vice President Biden, we actually saw 
wage growth for production workers lagging that of managers. Uh, we saw wage growth at the 10th percentile lagging that at the 90th percentile. That completely flipped uh, in, in three years of, of Trump and Pence. And the other thing is we saw, we saw income inequality decline by almost any measure. And then with the release of the, the Fed's survey of consumer finances, we saw also that wealth inequality declined. And, and by all three of those me- metrics, wage inequality, income inequality, wealth inequality, those all went up under under Obama and Biden. So I think that this is this is this is something that is not talked about often enough. Uh, and, you know, we saw last night in last night's debate that once again, uh, Vice President Pence was criticized with the standard line that, you know, the, the, the president's 2017 tax reform was a giveaway to, to the rich when, in fact, the proof is in the pudding. And in the two years after 2017 tax, the 2017 tax legislation, income, wage and wealth inequality actually declined in the United States. Uh, Fed Chairman Jay Powell has uh, pushed for another COVID relief package, suggesting that there needs to be more fiscal response to uh, the um, impact of the virus and mainly our response to the virus, particularly lockdown policies. And uh, President Trump has seemed to go a a little bit back and forth uh, over the last uh, few days in terms of whether or not he is still willing to negotiate with Speaker Pelosi to try and do a deal. Um, should there should there be a deal done or should the president take the position that some free market economists like Steve Moore have taken, which is you want to do something to provide relief? How about zeroing out the income tax for the foreseeable future or providing long term payroll tax relief or doing something that uh, that stimulates private sector activity rather than just providing more uh, borrowing and borrowing for the purposes of transfer payments? So we are definitely closely studying possibilities for a middle-class tax cut that would provide meaningful long-term supply-side incentives uh, and also provide longer-term relief to hardworking American households. In terms of the near term, we are very serious about uh, supporting standalone legislation that would provide near-term relief. Because remember, a lot of small businesses and a lot of industries are really struggling still now, and they're struggling because of government-imposed shutdowns. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why we do support standalone legislation to provide a reload of the, the Paycheck Protection Program, which was very successful uh, in the CARES Act in terms of helping small businesses to retain payrolls and maintain those employer-employee matches. Uh, we are also serious about providing some sort of, of, of some continuation of support for the airline industry, which also has been particularly hard hit by a lot of government-induced shutdowns and government-induced fear. Uh, And we do support standalone legislation to provide another round of economic impact payments uh, to low- and middle-income households as as we try to get through this this crisis. So the the, the area where there's disagreement uh, continues to be uh, what sort of – Resources should be provided to states and localities to deal with lost tax revenue. Is that the uh, that the sticking point? That was one of the sticking points, and you know I think one of the, the the reason we decided to disengage from the comprehensive negotiation was because basically these these provisions on which we have agreement, we have bipartisan agreement. Uh, these these provisions were essentially being held hostage for the ransom of hundreds of billions of dollars in essentially bailout money for uh, poorly run state and local governments. And and we did not think that that was appropriate. The the speaker originally had actually been demanding about a trillion dollars in money for state and local governments, which was just 
several orders of magnitude greater than than the anticipated shortfalls in, in state and local funding. So that, that, that number should never have been in the conversation at all. And the, the speaker came down from that, but was still demanding somewhere between 400 and $500 billion in additional aid for state and local government. And, and by our estimates, we were anticipating a shortfall uh, of, of $250 billion. And, and we weren't ruling out potentially down the road going higher, but we were just saying, you know, before we spend hundreds of billions of dollars of taxpayers' money, let's make sure that we have a clear sense of the actual line items and the actual shortfalls rather than just uh, a, a, a sort of uh, spendthrift bailout of, of state and local governments that weren't particularly well run even before the pandemic. He is Tyler Goodspeed, Council of Economic Advisors, Acting Chairman. Tyler Goodspeed, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Listen to the podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Last evening in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, near Milwaukee, there was uh, acts of uh, violence in response to a decision by local prosecutors to uh, not charge a police officer who shot and killed a 17-year-old black young man uh, last February. Milwaukee County District Attorney John Chisholm, by the way, Democrat, by the way, uh, if you don't remember the name, key antagonist of Scott Walker, in a 14-page letter laying out his rationale to not bring charges against the police officer involved in that police uh, involved in that shooting, said the evidence showed that the man in question, a 17-year-old named Alvin Cole, fled from police carrying a stolen 9-millimeter handgun. There was a squad car audio evidence along with testimony uh, from the officer and two fellow officers that uh, he said showed Cole had fired a shot. The young man had fired a shot while fleeing and he refused commands to drop the gun. Chisholm writing in his uh, letter, he did not surrender the weapon and was fired upon by officer Mensa causing his death. There was sufficient evidence that officer Mensa had an actual subjective belief that deadly force was necessary. And that belief was objectively reasonable. Well, that didn't stop people from taking the occasion because the merits don't matter to some of engaging in violence. And this was the sort of violence that you may want to take notice of there in the suburbs who, uh, if you have not been disabused yet from the experiences in Kenosha and Lancaster and Rochester, that this is not just a big city problem. Uh, uh, Vandalizing random people's homes in Wauwatosa near Milwaukee. And there's a video of this. Mark, I retweeted a tweet from Mark Dice and and there's uh, obviously coverage now of police needing to use tear gas and the like to disperse the crowd. For more on this and a few other matters, including last night's debate, we're pleased to be joined again by Clarence Page, Pulitzer Prize winning syndicated columnist and Washington based member of Chicago Tribune's editorial board, who this year celebrated the big 5 0, 50 years. I think half a century sounds more regal. A half century at the Chicago Tribune. Clarence Page, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you. And you had to rub in that 50 years. Didn't you? <laughs> 50 down, 50 to go. Um, uh, thanks for that. Appreciate it. 
Yeah, no problem. So so what about uh, this this continuing issue of of, uh, of violence in response to police involved legal matters, uh, police involved criminal investigations and criminal prosecutions? And again, as uh, you just heard us talking about this playing itself out in the streets of Wauwatosa yesterday. Yeah, it, it is uh, very uh, unfortunate. It is uh, tragic. And in some ways, it's uh, outrageous uh, that we uh, still have this kind of civil disorder these days. Uh, and um, I think uh, uh, it's a um, uh, something that uh, since the events of yesterday uh, were in a uh, place where I was not, I don't want to go into, uh, look deeply into commenting on uh, what was justified and what uh, needs to be done about it. But um, uh, we've had an upsurge uh, lately uh, in violence on the streets, and uh, uh, it's been very much a a local issue, yet it's caused national concern. Uh, But uh, I I don't know that, frankly, as far as uh, the um, presidential race, which uh, I've been deeply immersed in, it uh, uh, will probably be talked about um, in kind of the broad terms uh, by uh, the uh, Trump, uh, well, Trump and, and um, uh, Mike Pence, uh, who are uh, who, who, who've made more of an issue out of it uh, uh, lately in this campaign, and um, you, yet uh, it's really a local issue. Do, but do you think it is? But, but it's got a federal piece, especially when you're talking about scrambling national guard. Or you're talking about federal property under assault in particular communities. But, and I wonder if you think uh, yeah, Trump and Pence have definitely talked more about it than Biden and Harris, but do you think that Biden and Harris have not talked enough about it, have not been uh, clear enough on the topic? Well, the main thing is it's primarily a local issue. The uh, uh, National Guard uh, are of very limited use. Uh, you saw them uh, brought in uh, for a night or two in Chicago or D.C., uh, uh, and then uh, bought out again because uh, uh, the National Guard, and I'm an Army veteran myself, mm-hmm. uh, I tell you one, one thing, uh, the uh, Army's National Guard are not trained to be police officers. Uh, this is the kind of thing that, uh, that uh, is, is uh, best handled by local people. All right, when we come back with Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist Clarence Page, we're going to get uh, his view on last night's vice presidential debate. So stay tuned for more right after this. back with the Chicago Tribune's Clarence Page, member of the editorial board. Before the break, we were talking about the uh, rioting going on, the violence in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, in the wake of a decision by the Milwaukee County District Attorney, who's Democrat, not to file charges against a police officer who shot and killed an armed black person, black black man, in uh, February, who was uh, resisting arrest. And uh, you mentioned it. Uh, we were talking about the federal response in the context of violence in America's cities. And you 
focus on the the National Guard, but I don't want to limit it to the National Guard. It's also the Department of Justice coming in with Operation Legend and doing prosecutions, federal prosecutions. Right. And and so so the combination of the federal resources where they're properly deployed and in a limited fashion, but federal resources nonetheless. And frankly, in some cities, including Chicago, there's more of a clamor for federal resources. Okay, you want to talk about uh, Operation Legend? That's fine. In Chicago, it's doing a lot of good. And one of Chicago's biggest problems is guns being illegally brought over from Indiana next door. And uh, they have made dozens of arrests now uh, through Operation Legend because of the support that Chicago police have gotten. And also the coordination between the uh, Chicago mayor, who's a former U.S. attorney, and uh, the uh, current U.S. attorney for Northern Illinois. They have worked together very well, and they've made uh, great progress. So uh, knock on wood, we have had a uh, end for now to the sort of uh, street violence that you saw when you had a couple hundred looters who came down and uh, broke windows and stole full items on Michigan Avenue and downtown Chicago. So we've made some progress in that area. What exactly will uh, be done there in Wisconsin, I've yet to see. All right, Clarence, uh, let us now turn to uh, last night's vice presidential debate and talk about um, the focus of the debate being, at least certainly this was Kamala Harris's focus, being on the response to COVID-19. The pushback that Pence gave last night that didn't really come through in the presidential debate between Trump and Biden is essentially this is, wait a second, you supported a lot of the policies that we necessarily had to do based on listening to the experts that created the economic devastation that they created. We knew that locking down the economy was going to be bad for the economy. This is not exactly uh, a riddle. And now you're suggesting that we're responsible for the consequences, solely responsible for the consequences of policies you also supported. I mean, don't you think that is a little bit disingenuous of Biden and Harris? You know, I uh, think it's a flawed argument myself because you're absolutely right. This crisis is one that calls for drastic action. I was surprised at how quickly and how broadly the public cooperated. However, you're right. It caused great damage to the economy, at least, well, what we hope will be temporary damage. But, you know, it's been over six months now. That's a, a long temporary and uh, it is something that what really troubles me now is the uh, efforts by the administration to want to get the economy open again without taking what seemed to me to be uh, pretty minimal precautions. But uh, was it worth it shutting down the economy? Uh, I think, yes, if you compare us with other countries. Right now, you know, Europe is reopening, uh, and uh, we have seen uh, now the, the world's largest economy, ours, uh, is having the least success now in pushing back the virus. And that's what really troubles me right now. That the mixed signals the public is getting have resulted in a lot of confusion. A lot of people don't want to cooperate now. That They don't want to wear masks. They don't want to do this and that. And uh, we're finding more hot spots popping up. Well, I mean, the other thing I, I would think, uh, knowing you a little bit, having had conversations with you, that would concern you is who is disproportionately being impacted by lockdown policies, and whether it's business or schools. And that's the poor. I know that people lifting people Always. out of lifting people out of poverty is a big uh, focus of yours. And the poor are being disproportionately hammered by these lockdown policies. Yeah, always. Uh, that's, the, that's the problem, of course. Uh, I think now you know how fortunate I am to be in a, a job that I'm able to do from home. Uh, that, uh, to, to do Zoom and uh, other uh, uh, what, Internet uh, functions in order to be able to carry on. Uh, and uh, that, that's a real divide, uh, and it's a new divide. Uh, our kids now, uh, if you haven't got some money and resources, uh, our kids are having a hard time 
being educated at home. Uh, all of these uh, issues that have popped up uh, have just uh, uh, made the gap between uh, rich and poor even worse. And uh, uh, that means we really do need to reopen as soon as we can, but, but do it safely. Uh, I wanted to, uh, on a different topic, I wanted to ask you, since you're uh, uniquely situated to answer the question as a Pulitzer Prize winner, there's uh, an open letter that was uh, penned by Peter Wood at the National Association of Scholars and signed by a number of academics, including your friend Glenn Lowry, uh, economics professor at Brown University, that Pulitzer, the Pulitzer Board must revoke Nicole Hannah-Jones's Pulitzer Prize, arguing that, you know, the evidence and the, and the criticism from historians about the 1619 Project is so overwhelming that, uh, that, that conferring a Pulitzer Prize on the project, and Nicole Hannah-Jones specifically, is, is illegitimate. It denigrates the prize. How do you respond to that? Uh, well, uh, first of all, this isn't the first time that someone's Pulitzer has been challenged, uh, and uh, it, um, uh, it is um, uh, something that the board does take seriously. Uh, in this particular instance, uh, I think it's important to remember that before the Pulitzer was awarded, the, uh, the 1619 project was controversial, uh, and the, uh, yes. a, uh, a big petition of historians had protested the notion uh, that uh, the uh, that uh, uh, black people were, were more or less solely responsible for their own liberation, uh, it, it really downplayed the role of, of white abolitionists. And uh, in fact, Nicole wound up uh, redoing part of the essay. She made some changes there so that it wasn't phrased quite the way I just badly phrased it, and uh, didn't uh, imply that uh, uh, white people didn't have anything, anything to do with black liberation. But nevertheless, uh, uh, the, the series on the whole, because it calls on us to think of 1619, just the nation's founding, which was the time when, when the first Africans arrived in North America. That's a very upfront theme, very upfront argument, and the Pulitzer folks, judges, and, and the board uh, awarded the essay and the whole project. And so I don't think it's really new. Uh, 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 as far as the uh, response with, with like Glenn Lowry, uh, he, he and I and a bunch of, of other uh, black journalists and scholars uh, wrote a, a response report, 1776 report, we call it. Bob Woodson of the Woodson Foundation uh, started that project. Mm -hmm. And it has started a, a nice, generous dialogue here in the country. The main advantage to me is it's caused people to look at history again. And just the fact that we have this kind of a dialogue, I think, is really positive. He is Clarence Page, Pulitzer Prize-winning syndicated columnist, Washington-based member of the Chicago Tribune's editorial board. Clarence, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. To close out this Thursday evening edition, we move from uh, an officer who wasn't charged in the Milwaukee area, our discussion with Clarence Page in part, to uh, the McCloskeys who were charged in St. Louis. Grand jury indicting Mark and Patricia McCloskey on charges of exhibiting guns at protesters in that uh, now infamous June incident in which protesters trespassed on their property and, and private property in that little enclave. They destroyed private property, the gate that was destroyed. 
But it's Mark and Patricia McCloskey who are under indictment for exhibiting guns at protesters. Also, the grand jury adding a charge of tampering with evidence for both Mark and Patricia McCloskey. Their attorney, Joel Schwartz, saying, once all the facts are out, it'll be clear that McCloskey's committed no crime, frankly, because the grand jury is not an adversarial process and defense counsel not allowed in there. And I have no idea what was said to the grand jury and what law was given to the grand jury. And of course, we know grand juries are directed by the prosecution, as he says, not adversarial. So the old, the proverbial, they can indict a ham sandwich. Right. Mark and Patricia McCloskey previously charged with felony counts of exhibiting weapons. They um, now are being charged with tampering with evidence. The suggestion is that the gun that Patricia McCloskey was holding later turned over to police by their attorney was rendered inoperable after its brandishment by McCloskey. Remember, we talked about this St. Louis Police Crime Lab uh, news story about the St. Louis Police Crime Lab showed that a prosecutor had instructed the examiners to reassemble the gun correctly after uh, they were indicted, charged with these felonies. Mark McCloskey expressed frustration. They broke down our gate. They trespassed on our property. Not a single one of those people are now charged with anything. We're charged with felonies that could cost us four years of our lives and our law license. He added that uh, basically the decision not to prosecute the trespassers showed that, that shows that the left-wing government in St. Louis is choosing to protect criminals over honest citizens. What you are witnessing here is just an opportunity for the government, the leftist Democrat government of the city of St. Louis, to persecute us for doing no more than exercising our Second Amendment rights. He's right, and remember, as we've said before, I've said before, the McCloskey's not exactly sympathetic figures. Trial lawyers rarely are. The litigious and, and typical of trial lawyers this is almost redundant. They're particularly litigious. So I'm not necessarily inclined to be too sympathetic to Mark and Patricia McCloskey, except to the extent that that's exactly what our constitutional rights are for, to make sure they're enjoyed equally by people, regardless of whether you find them sympathetic or not. That's the only way to guarantee a free society. And as John Lott Jr. has said on our program, and you've heard, and it hasn't come up in the debates as uh, as significant an issue as it is, particularly against the backdrop of the violence we saw again in Wisconsin last night and continue to see around the country, the right of self-protection, a virtual or not virtual debate or no more debates at all. This is a case that President Trump, Vice President Pence, the Trump campaign Republicans need to make, particularly in those swing areas with blue collar Democrats who believe in Second Amendment rights the same way that conservative Republicans do. And this McCloskey case Maybe just the perfect example to underscore what's at stake when it comes to the right to, of self-protection on November 3rd. Thank you for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow to close out the week. Have a good day. This is the Dan Prof Show.